And the plan over the next few weeks is to be looking at uh, several psalms. Uh, This morning, we'll be looking at number 131. Let me read it. It says in verse 1, O Lord, my heart is not lifted up. My eyes are not raised too high. I do not occupy myself with things too great and too marvelous for me, but I have calmed and quieted my soul like a weaned child with its mother. Like a weaned child is my soul within me. O Israel, hope in the Lord from this time forth and forevermore. Amen. This is the word of our Lord. Let's pray and ask God to bless his word. Our great God, we come before you this morning. We come before you through Jesus Christ, our mediator, because of his person and his work, especially how he has taken upon himself the punishment of sin that we deserve. We pray, Lord, that you would cleanse us from our sins through Jesus Christ, that during this time we might have communion with you. We pray that you would teach us by your Holy Spirit. You know our hearts. You see within us uh, the pride that is in our hearts. We pray that you would convict us of sin where necessary, that you would guide us into the truth and into righteousness, and that you would remind us of the good news of Jesus Christ and his righteousness. We ask that you would speak, and we ask in Jesus' name, amen. Well, I wonder if uh, any of you are facing a situation right now where you do not know the future. Anybody facing something where you don't know what's going on? to happen. Uh, You just think about that for half a second and you realize that all of us are facing that situation. None of us knows the future and what's going to happen, but maybe we can uh, make the question a little more specific. How many of you are facing a situation where you are worried about what's going to happen? You don't know what's going to happen and so that makes you anxious or fearful. There are many personal situations that we might face and people in this congregation might be facing uh, that can cause us to worry. It could be with sickness. Uh, You are feeling something in your body or you went to the doctor and you're wondering what is the test result going to say. A situation in life that you desire something to change. Perhaps you were wondering if you will find the spouse that you desire. Or if you're able be able to have a, the child that you desire. Or perhaps you are pregnant with the child and you're wondering, how is this going to turn out? Is everything going to turn out well? You're moving across the country and you're worried, how am I going to be able to make it moving all the way across the country? How's that going to go? Or you have children and you wonder, how are the children going to turn out? Are, are they going to follow the Lord? Or will they grow up and be bitter towards God and towards the church? 
These are all the kinds of personal situations that we worry about because we don't know what's going to happen. Or maybe we could just look at the big picture of the world. We see things that are happening in our country. We see things that are happening in the world. Uh, you see the gas prices going up. Oh my, is, is the gas price just going to keep going up and up? When's it going to stop? Or is there going to be a World War III with everything going on between Ukraine and Russia? Well, the answer to all these questions, of course, is we don't know. The fact that we don't know, of course, makes us worry about these things. But what we do know as we face these situations is what God is trying to work in our lives. That God is trying to sanctify us. And help us to grow in trusting him and resting in him. And in the words of this psalm, what God is doing is he is trying to wean us. That's this psalm's way of saying God is sanctifying us. It's oftentimes when those things that are comfortable in our lives, when things are going well in our lives, that we don't realize how much we really desire to have control over things. And we desire to to know what's going to happen. But when those comforts are taken away from us, that's when we start to worry. That's when we become aware of what's in our hearts. We really love to control our lives. We would really love to know the future. Uh, Scottish Puritan Samuel Rutherford said it this way, It is the Lord's kindness that he will take the scum off us in the fire. Who knows how much we need winnowing and what dross we have before we enter the kingdom of God. So narrow is the entry to heaven that our knots and lumps of pride and self-love and idol love and world love must be hammered off of us so that we may stoop low and creep through in that narrow way. See, all of us need this pride to be beaten off of us before we are fit to enter into heaven. And this is what God is doing. He is weaning us of that pride as we face these uncertain situations. Well, that's what we're going to look at in this psalm. Uh, The main message of this psalm is very simple. That uh, less pride will bring more peace. Less pride in your heart will bring more peace. More pride brings less peace. Now that is an easy thing to say, but this is a very hard lesson for us to learn. As Spurgeon said about this psalm, it is one of the shortest to read, but one of the longest to learn. And that is very true. We all struggle with learning this lesson. Less pride brings more peace. And so we're going to look at this lesson by dividing the psalm into three parts, which are the three different verses of the psalm. First, we're going to see the problem of our worry or our anxiety. Then in verse 2, we see the solution to our worry. And in verse 3, the exhortation. So the problem, the solution, and the exhortation. Let's start in verse 1 by looking at the problem. I'll read it again. He says, O Lord, my heart is not lifted up. My eyes are not raised too high. 
I do not occupy myself with things too great and too marvelous for me. And one of the first things you notice as you read that verse is you see the word not there three different times. My heart is not lifted up, my eyes are not raised high, and I do not go after things too great for me. So what does this mean? This is a psalm of David. Uh, So David is uh, writing this psalm. He is praying this psalm. Does this mean then that David has achieved this great state of, of piety and love for God? And he has this great trust in God so that he doesn't worry about anything anymore because he's become the the super godly man and he decided that he wanted to write a psalm about how godly he was so that he could teach everyone else how to achieve that state is that what this psalm's about well that's how some people would interpret it but it seems to me that this is more of a prayer of david because it starts with the word "O lord so david is praying this And he's praying this, I believe, not because he has achieved this state of never worrying about anything, but because he desires to achieve this state. So why does he say not three times? I'm not lifted up. Well, it's because by by praying this prayer, he he is hoping, he is desiring for this to happen in his heart. Oh Lord, I pray that my heart would not be lifted up. So maybe uh, an analogy might help to think about this. If you are a kid right now, you may have gone through this, and all of us have been kids at some point in this room. You may have gone through something that was scary for you, like getting on a roller coaster. And you get into that roller coaster, and you're really high up, and you hear those clicks, you're locked in, and you know there's no turning back. You are scared. Or maybe you've gone on a diving board. You've gone on one of those really tall diving boards. And there you are climbing up that ladder and standing on the precipice of that diving board. And you look down and you are scared. And what do you do as a kid? You try to be tough. You say to yourself, I'm not scared. You're tough. You're brave. You can do this. And that seems to be what David is doing here. When he says, my heart is not lifted up, it reveals the problem. His heart is lifted up or proud. And that is why he is praying to God to make, that, make his heart change, to make this not be the case. So that's why verse 1 reveals to us our problem. Our problem of, of why we haven't gotten to verse 2, why we are not like a weaned child on its mother, calm like that child but instead we are worried the the reason we worry about so many things is because we have this problem of verse one our heart is lifted up our eyes are raised high and we do occupy ourselves with things too great for us so let's look at what that means the heart is the the inner being of who you are and to be lifted up is referring to pride we have pride within us We worry about things because we think that we deserve things. We think that we are special. And we think that things ought to go the way that we decide that they ought to go. That's pride within our hearts. 
And you look at your, the eyes, the, the eyes being raised high. That's also an expression of pride. Uh, in today's language, you could say uh, this is a person who is stuck up. To be stuck up is to be prideful. And in English, we have an expression for a stuck-up person that they have their nose in the air. And that's not a literal expression. I hardly ever see anyone with their literal nose way up in the air walking around because they're prideful people. Well, the same goes for Hebrew. It's a Hebrew expression here. Instead of their nose being up in the air, it's their eyes being raised high as a, as a sign of their pride. You see this in Psalm 18, verse 27. It says, you save a humble people, but the haughty eyes you bring down. So the opposite of a humble person is a person with haughty eyes, with lifted up eyes. So the eyes reveal the desire for pride uh, that comes from within the heart. But then, at the end of verse 1, you see that then it goes to the feet. He says, I do not occupy myself with things too great and too marvelous for me. This is another Hebrew expression that is literally the word walk that in ESV it translates as occupy. I do not go after or I do not walk after things that are too great for me. And so you see this kind of progression here uh, that pride begins in the heart. Pride is then expressed with the eyes and then it is lived out. It is followed after what the things that we do, the things that we walk after. And so this is a good lesson for us. It's a reminder for us that that our hearts and our eyes are connected and then our eyes are connected to what, how we live. Now, usually when you think of the eyes and guarding your eyes, you've probably heard a lot of teaching uh, in, in the church about how guarding your eyes is for looking impurely upon another person. But this psalm is saying that your eyes can also look upon things that will tempt you towards desiring greatness. Desiring things that are too great for you. And, and when you look at them, you will want to go after them. Now, there are uh, lots of ways that that can apply. Uh, we live in a very uh, uh, digital world, a very um, a world with a, a, lot, a lot of ways that people can go look things up. You can look at things on the internet. You've got Instagram and YouTube and blogs. And, and in every station of life, every situation, whatever your profession is, you have people that you can look at online that could tempt you to desire greatness. If you're a stay-at-home mom, maybe you look at these blogs and you see these blogs of all the home remodels and home decorations and the, the baking websites with the perfect slice of key lime pie and you say, wow, I'm not a very good stay-at-home mom because look at these people. Look, look at all the, the perfect things that they're able to produce. Churches can look at other churches. And you can say, wow, look at that church. Outwardly, they look so successful. Why can't our church 
be as successful as they are. Pastors can watch other pastors and say, wow, I'm not as good a preacher as him. I wish I could be a preacher like him. There are so many ways that with our eyes we can be tempted to then desire a worldly type of greatness and go after those things. We need to guard our eyes. Now why does pride lead to worry? Well, again, we see this at the end of verse 1. Worry comes when we occupy ourselves with things too great and too marvelous for us. We are not yet weaned from this desire for great things. So, for example, knowing the future. Knowing the future is something that is beyond you. It is too great for you. You will not know the future, and you will not be able to control your life. We would like to have levers that we can pull to make God do the things that we want him to do. And we want him to do it on our timeline. God, I want this to happen next to achieve this goal. But such things are too great and too marvelous for us. The Bible says in Isaiah 55, verses 8 and 9, God is speaking and he says, My thoughts are not your thoughts, neither are your ways my ways, declares the Lord. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts than your thoughts. God's thoughts are way up here and his ways are way too great and wonderful for us. Our thoughts and our ways are way down here. But in our pride... We desire for God's thoughts to be our thoughts. God needs to do what we demand that he do. In Romans 11 verse 33 says, Oh, the depth of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments and how inscrutable are his ways. We want to scrutinize God's ways. But his ways are inscrutable. They are past finding out. And so it is pride that occupies our, ourselves and our thoughts with these things that are too great for us. The future and controlling our lives. We will have peace. We will have less worry when we decide to not try to be like God. To not try to have the thoughts and controlling our worlds the way that God is in control of the world. So we see our problem. Our problem is our pride. And we've mentioned a little bit, but this brings us more specifically to the solution in verse 2. If the problem with our, our worry, our lack of um, peace is our pride, well, the solution is to be weaned. Weaned from this pride, weaned from this desire for control and knowledge of the future. Verse 2 says, But I have calmed and quieted my soul like a weaned child with its mother. Like a weaned child is my soul within me. I just want to ask you, is your soul calmed and quieted? 
in this past week? Was your soul calm and quiet? Or did you worry about many things this past week? Are you fearful of many things? Right now, this morning, as you come here, is your soul calm and quiet? Well, this is what God wants for us. To have a soul that is calm and quiet like a weaned child with its mother. Now, this is a pretty common image. uh, Easy somewhat to understand that this psalm is using. A weaned child with its mother. A child is totally dependent upon its mother at the beginning for food, for milk. And so the child forms a habit. The child knows every time I scream and cry, I, if I'm hungry, I will get the milk that I need. This is how I communicate that I'm hungry. This is how I get fed. This is what comforts me. This is what makes my life good and easy. And so, cause and effect. I cry, I get fed. Now, I know that uh, many uh, moms have lots of opinions about how to raise children, but hopefully all moms can agree that eventually the child needs to be weaned. A child cannot eat milk forever, but must come to the point of eating solid food. That's what it means to be weaned, to, to be able to eat solid food. So, there's a process There's a process of weaning to get the child to only eat uh, solid food. So, that process is not easy. It is difficult. And you can imagine that the child that is so used to this habit of crying and screaming and getting its milk uh, then does not really like the process of coming to eat solid food. But it's good for the child, isn't it? It's the best thing. And eventually, the child is going to be like a six-year-old and sitting at the table eating solid food. And that child will have no memory of that process of weaning. They will have no memory of how difficult it was to go from milk to solid food. And so this is what God does in our lives. God will remove something that you rely on. God will remove something that is comfortable for you. Maybe you got comfortable living so close to your family. Maybe you got comfortable with your financial situation or with your job situation or with your family situation. And the way that we put it is is sometimes the rug gets pulled out from under us. Why does that happen? Why does that happen? It's because God is weaning us. And when the rug gets pulled out from, from, from under us, we are like the child. We cry. God, what are you doing? Why is this happening to me right now? But eventually, you can come to the point that when those comforts are removed, you can actually be calm and quiet. You can be like a child with its mother that is no longer crying because it has been weaned. What's happened for that child is not that 
that now he, he gets the milk whenever he cries. No. What's happened is that the desires of the child have changed. The expectations of the child have changed. And so this is how we come to have peace. That even when God removes those comforts from us, even when we face the sufferings and the trials, we can have peace because our expectations have changed. That now we understand more of who God is. We understand that we are not to occupy ourselves with those things that are too great and wonderful to us. We no longer are obsessed with controlling the future. We no longer demand that God's ways be our ways. And so we rest in the providence of God. You probably know what the Heidelberg Catechism is. It was written in the 1500s uh, in Germany. And it was in a time when there was a lot of persecution. So those people who wrote the catechism experienced great suffering. And that's why so many people love the Heidelberg. Um, They got the part about baptism wrong. But besides that, it's a very good catechism. And... It's very uh, pastoral to people who are suffering. Question 27 talks about God's providence. And he says there, it says there, God's providence is the almighty and everywhere present power of God, whereby by his hand he still upholds heaven and earth with all creatures and so governs them that herbs and grass, rain and drought, fruitful and barren years, Meat and drink, health and sickness, riches and poverty. Yes, all things come not by chance, but by his fatherly hand. God is provident. God's providence is, is, is over your life. His fatherly hand is directing everything in your life. Now, the next question. Why do I need to know that? Well, question 28 of the Catechism says... What does it profit us to know that God, by his providence, still upholds all things? And here's the great answer. That we may be patient in adversity, thankful in prosperity, and for what is future, have good confidence in our faithful God and Father. That no creature shall separate us from his love. Since all creatures are so in his hand that without his will they cannot so much as move. Or in the words of Psalm 131, we can be like a weaned child, recognizing God's providence. Christian, if you belong to Christ, God loves you. The Father who is in control of all things loves you. And he has good plans for you. Nothing will separate you from his love. And so you don't have to worry about the future. Because you know that the father has a good future for you. You don't have to desire to be in control of every step of what's going to happen in your life. Because you know that your father loves you and he is in control of each step. This is where peace comes. Learning to rest in the Father's providence and His love for us. It's a hard lesson to learn. The longest lesson to learn, but we need to pray, O Lord, give me a heart that is not proud. Lord, help me not to 
go after these things that are too great for me. Lord, give me a calm and quiet soul. So before we move on to the exhortation in verse 3, I just want to think for a few minutes about what would it look like to live this, this weaned life, this calm and quiet life. Well, the Bible tells us that the life we are to seek after is not a life of worldly greatness, but to seek the lowly place, to seek to be a servant. And again, the world around you with you know, somebody in Kansas sitting in their basement, being an, on, an, on an Instagram account, uh, becoming a, an influencer, the world around you will tempt you and say, well, why aren't you one of those people? Well, the Bible says, that's not what you need to seek after. As being an influencer, seek after being a lowly servant. This is great in the eyes of God. Charles Spurgeon, you know the famous preacher? Did you know that he never went to college? And there was a time as a teenager that he desired to go to college and he actually was going to apply. He had a meeting set up with the admissions person. He went to the building and uh, he was made to wait for a few minutes. The person was busy. And as he sat there waiting to go into the meeting, he felt like God struck him with a verse. Jeremiah 45, verse 5. Seekest great things for thyself? Seek them not. And he thought the Holy Spirit was telling him right then and there, do not apply for college. So he walked out of the building. And he ended up never going to college for the rest of his life. He thought that at that time, going to college would have been for him a desire, a seeking after worldly greatness. And he was not to do that. And that lesson applies to us. We are not to seek after what the world calls great. There's nothing inherently wrong with desiring to go to college or wanting a PhD or wanting a promotion in your job. But if your motive is to be great in the world's eyes, do not seek those things. Do not seek great things for yourself. What does the Bible say? 1 Timothy 2, verse 2, in talking about prayer, as we pray for those in authority, we should pray that we could live quiet and dignified lives, uh, godly and quiet lives in Christ Jesus. Pray that you could live a quiet life. That's what Paul says. In 1 Thessalonians 4, verse 11, it says, Aspire to live quietly and mind your own affairs and work with your hands. Theologian Michael Horton said, Everybody wants to change the world. Nobody wants to change the diapers. And his point was that changing the diapers is actually how we glorify God. Seeking what the world considers as low and meaningless is actually greatness in God's eyes. The normal work that you do as a man going to work and providing for your family on Monday morning when maybe you aren't really feeling like it, that glorifies God. 
the normal work you do if you're a stay-at-home mom, changing diapers and feeding kids, that glorifies God. This is great in God's eyes. Another theologian from the 60s and 70s, Francis Schaeffer, wrote a great essay called No Little People, No Little Places. I recommend if you have time, you should try to find it and read that. makes this point. There are no little people in God's eyes. And there is no little place in God's eyes. And he talks about how even Christians, sometimes we seek after greatness in the name of Christ. Well, I can have a lot of influence for the gospel and for Christ. He says, no. Christ tells us to consciously seek the lowest place. And he uses this metaphor of being in the lowest place until God extrudes us into a higher position. And this metaphor of extruding, he says, is like a a soft metal that has been melted and is put through a, a cast, a mold, and it is being pushed through until it comes out. And he says that's what Christians should be like. Consciously seek the lowest place unless, until God pushes you into a higher place of more authority or more um, notoriety. This is how we live a calm and quiet life. Don't occupy yourself with these ideas of worldly greatness. But seek the low place. Well, we finish in verse 3 with the exhortation. The exhortation. Verse 3 says, O Israel, hope in the Lord from this time forth and forevermore. Hope in the Lord. Israel is the people of God in the Old Testament, and so the church is the people of God in, in the New Testament. Uh, The church in the New Testament is made up of Jews and Gentiles who have faith in Jesus Christ. This is how you enter into the people of God, is through faith in Christ. And so when we read exhortation to Israel in the Old Testament, we can apply that to ourselves. Church, hope in the Lord. The saints who are at Albany Baptist Church, hope in the Lord. If you belong to Christ, you are called and commanded here to hope in the Lord now and forever. Your hope is always to be in the Lord. Do you hope in the Lord? Maybe some of you do not place your hope in the Lord. Maybe some of you do not know Him as your Lord and as Savior. Well, this verse here is calling upon you, if you are, you are outside of the people of God, is calling upon you to hope in the Lord. Without the Lord, you do not have hope. No matter what kind of greatness you might achieve in this world's eyes, you will have an eternity without hope if you do not hope in the Lord. Because you, like all of us, are guilty before the Holy God because of your sin. You have broken God's law and you stand under His eternal judgment. But this is why Christ came into the world was to save sinners like us. This is why Christ came and humbled himself and lived a perfect life. 
His perfect life that he lived can, can be substituted for us, can, can be credited to our account so that God would look upon us and see us as righteous, as perfect. Not because we are, but because Christ takes our place. And so as we read Psalm 131, we see how our hearts are proud and how we so often go after things too great and too wonderful for us. We see how our souls are not calm and quiet, but we remember Jesus Christ. And Jesus Christ was the most humble man to walk the earth. The Son of God left the glories of heaven and humbled himself and became like a servant. He became a servant even to the point of death, the death on a cross. His heart was not proud as he walked this earth. And he did not occupy himself with things too great and too wonderful for him. But he had a calm and quiet soul, submitting to his Father in perfect obedience every moment of his life. And you remember maybe the story of Jesus going to the Garden of Gethsemane and going up the Mount of Olives and how he agonized in prayer as he was knowing that the cup of the wrath of God was about to fall upon him. And he said, Father, I wish that this cup would be taken from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but your will be done. In his human nature, Jesus, knowing how terrible that wrath would be, in, in one sense, he did not want to take that cup. But, as the perfect Son of God, he, he knew the Father's will. And so, he calmed and quieted his soul. Your will be done, not my will. In the last few weeks here in morning worship, we read Mark 15. Of how Jesus went to the trial. And he did not respond He did not retaliate. He did not defend himself. He did not argue. And he did not pursue worldly greatness. You know, Jesus was truly the king of David. He truly had a right to David's throne. He could have demanded that he sit upon a throne in Jerusalem and reign over the world and make all the nations bow at his feet right then and there. And in a worldly sense, that's what the world wanted It's what the world considered to be great, but he did not pursue that kind of worldly greatness. But he calmed and quieted his soul. He went to his slaughter silently. And he gave up his life. And he did this as a substitute for sinners like us. He did this as a Savior, so that those who are guilty before God may find eternal life in Him. And so He calls all of us, now as the one who has died and risen from the dead, He calls all of us to hope in Him, to trust in Him. Trust Him as your Savior. Make Him the Lord of your life. Repent of your sins and stop seeking to live life your own way, but seek 
to follow him instead, doing whatever he calls you to do. In this way, you will have hope. You can hope in the Lord because God promises that no eye has seen, no ear has heard what God has in store for those who love him. So I will close with another quote from Samuel Rutherford, who, by the way, was also someone who experienced great suffering, placed basically in exile in in a barren land way up in the north of Scotland uh, for preaching the gospel. He experienced great suffering, but he understood how to have a calm and quiet soul. He says, The great master gardener, the father of our Lord Jesus Christ, in a wonderful providence, with his own hand, planted me here in this part of his vineyard. Here I grow, and here I will abide, till the great master of the vineyard thinks it fit to transplant me. Christians, this is why you can have a calm soul. God is good. And he has planted you here. Not only in this place, but in this time in your life, in this situation in your life that you are now facing, God has planted you right there with his own hand. Here you will grow. Here you will abide until the master of the vineyard transplants you somewhere else. God is a good father. He has put you here. And so, church of God, you can hope in the Lord right now and forever. Let's pray together. Oh Lord, we do come before you in need, confessing our own weakness and sins against you, yet desiring to be like our Savior, Jesus Christ. Oh Lord, we pray that our hearts would not be proud and our eyes would not be raised too high and that we would not occupy ourselves with things too great and too wonderful for us. But help us by your Holy Spirit to have calm and quiet souls like a weaned child with its mother. That like a weaned child, so our souls would be within us. Thank you that in you we have hope. That you are the God of hope. The God who controls all things and controls the future. And so we pray, Lord, that you would help us to hope in you now and forever. For the glory of your name and for the sake of Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray, amen.